Welcome to the Defense and Aerospace Report podcast. I'm your host, Vagram Radian. Our podcast is brought to you by Bell since 1935. Bell has been redefining flight. Learn more about its pioneering spirit at bellflight.com. Joining us today is retired United States Navy Admiral Mike Rogers, the former director of the National Security Agency and the former commander of the U.S. Cyber Command. He's now a cyber consultant and also serves as the chairman of the advisory board of cybersecurity firm Clarity. Sir, thanks so very much for joining us. It's always an honor and pleasure having you on the program. Thanks very much, Vago. Look forward to the conversation. Before we get started, Leonardo DRS and HII sponsor our global coverage. General Atomics Aeronautical Systems sponsors our coverage of strategy, ultra-intelligence and communications, sponsors our command and control coverage, and GE Aerospace sponsors our air warfare coverage. And our coverage of the Navy League's annual Sea Air Space Conference and Trade Show was sponsored by HII, Leonardo DRS, GE Marine, a GE Aerospace company, and Helicon Chemical. So normally you come on and you talk to us about big, high cyber uh, concepts, but I figured this time let's have you aboard uh, and talk uh, a little bit about the security piece of this, obviously, uh, in the wake of what has been uh, the largest uh, breach of uh, classified American information uh, in a decade since the Snowden disclosure. And you have the distinction of having uh, gone through both the Manning uh, the Chelsea Manning uh, breach, as well as the, the Snowden breach. This one seems to be different in character. A 21-year-old uh, airman first class, uh, Jack Teixeira, who's accused uh, of trying to impress his friends. Uh, but at the end of the day, he is the third, um, if you will, network manager, much lower ranking technical person uh, who has compromised American uh, secrets. A lot of these were known senior officials had been discussing them publicly, although there is a difference in seeing that granular uh, detail. And I want to get to the allies and partners part of this uh, as well. In the wake of 9-11, we decided more security clearances are better, more people would help us connect dots. And now by some estimates, and I think The Economist reported on this number, we have 1 million people out of 330 million who have a top secret or top secret compartmented information, TSSCI uh, clearances. Um, the department is looking at its security protocols and practices. You're one of the people who's been a longtime advocate of, of smarter, not just more security. What's the right approach in the wake of this incident, Mike, to try to address this challenge? Because even though it may be happening on 10-year centers, still very, very bad. And the timing of yeah. this uh, is, is particularly bad. So broadly, you've got two philosophies that, that tend to butt heads here. There, there's one philosophy that has historically argued, look, the way to ensure that information is appropriately protected and that in turn, you get to maximize the value of that information because it's tightly controlled and it's appropriately held from others who would, it could damage our relationships or it could create advantage for an opponent if they were aware of it. That philosophy generally has always argued it's about restricted, less access. It's about making information less broadly available within the general classified, you know, people with classified, with clearances in, in the national security infrastructure. That's one viewpoint historically. What happened, as you mentioned, post 9-11 in particular, remember the 9-11 commission came back and one of their findings was you guys had data points that you didn't really realize because you were so stovepiped and so restricted in information sharing that those data points were not tied together because they were not viewed by broad enough an audience. 
And so the 9-11 commission said, look, which is the second philosophy, you got to maximize the, the level of information sharing. You want to maximize the capabilities of the broad elements of the government to tie things together, to look for insights that broadly more is better because it will help facilitate better outcomes. So these two philosophies have always been um, diametrically opposed in some ways. My position has always been, look, I think the answer is a compromise somewhere in the middle. And the part I always thought was missing was, why aren't we taking in more advantage of technology to both enable us to broaden the, the individuals that have potential ability to access it, but why aren't we using technology also to limit the ways in which they access, to also control the potential unintended further distribution of this information, whether it's people who are printing things out you know, for example, people who are taking, in this case, it appears that, um, again, we're in the early days of this, but some of the postings suggest that he was taking photographs of things right. and then removing, which again would be problematic. So we're going to work our way through this, but clearly it suggests to me that our current security approach is not well matched with the technologies of today, both in terms of technologies that enable you to access information and extract it in an unintended manner, as well as technologies that enable you to help control the ability to do that. We're still using the same fundamental systems and processes in many ways we've used for the last 20 or 30 years. And yet look at how the world has changed around us. Do, do we need to uh, reduce the number of people touching this information, right? I mean, do I, I understand the whole, uh, you know, we wanted to connect the dots better and anybody who can help us connect the dots and put their hand up. But time and again, we've seen um, and also change the way, right? I mean, the problem does not appear to be at the Mike Rogers level. It doesn't appear to be, uh, you know, I mean, obviously there are counterintelligence folks are working this stuff at a, in a real-time basis. Hopefully we learned lessons from the Hansen breaches uh, ultimately uh, uh, more than a decade ago. But ultimately, Mike, do we need fewer people touching this information? Uh, and if you're going to have more people, how do you do this? Because we are behind in security clearances. I yeah, mean, some yeah. people are now waiting for two years to get their clearances. And that, in turn, is impacting everything because we say, well, you need TSSCI is just to get in the door, which um, you know might, might be overkill a little bit. Yeah. I, so what I think the answer is going to be, I suspect, don't know for sure, but I suspect it's going to be some combination of restrict or lower the number of individuals who have been granted access. And then secondly, is there a way to place tighter controls on information to those who have been granted access? Because it's interesting. If you go back and look at espionage in the, or compromises in the 1980s, for example, they tended to be mid-level-ish, I would say, individuals. What you're seeing in the last 20 years is many of them, not all of them, many of them tend to be much lower level individuals who use their access to data that didn't necessarily tie to their day-to-day -day jobs, but because they had been granted broad access, they were able to, to gain access and compromise information that didn't necessarily tie to their day-to-day -day jobs. And that is definitely, to me, a problematic, and it's an indicator we don't have the current structure right. So what does a technological solution, right? I mean, if you were going to look at custody of information, 
right? And at this point, we don't know, again, at this taping, whether the kid pulled stuff from a burn bag and it looks like he pulled stuff that was or printed something out, took it home, put it on his countertop, right? If you read the New York Times story, they matched the granite countertop, <laughs> which I thought was nice mosaicing of information, by the mm. way, on the part of the Times. Um, you know, it, whereas some of it was, you know, apparently committed to memory and went back and wrote it. And, you know, ultimately, how do we need to think about the custody, whether it's in, uh, because all of it is residing in cyberspace, right? All of it has controls that are on it, even if it's in the cloud, right? So we're locking the cloud, but we're also locking the information on the cloud. And yet at some point, people are printing brief briefing slides out, right? Yeah. What's the technological solution in your mind about how to have custody across important information that makes it at least more difficult to technically share? And then my follow-up question is, how do you actually drill this into folks that they just not do stupid crap? Because security would be great if it wasn't for the humans. Yeah. So my first point I make is remember almost to date in the, the compromises we've had, let's just say in the last 20 years, last 15, they have all been done by individuals who had a valid access to the information that they stole. Right. And they were all insiders. Now, I'm not arguing that's the only thing we need to model our, our strategy and our security structure against. But we're focusing on these significant disclosures. And as you're trying to figure out solutions. So number one, they've all been valid users. N number two, they, they often have tended to use their access for material that, quite frankly, didn't tie to their day-to-day -day work. So that's one area to address. Is there a way to use technology to understand when individuals are accessing data that doesn't pertain to their day-to-day -day jobs. That, that, that's a flag. Um, secondly, the scenarios have been slightly different, but information has been removed by these valid users through, through, through some combination, if you just look over the last 15 years, either remote media, downloaded to a CD, downloaded to a thumb, again, I'm going back 15 years, downloaded a thumb drive, downloaded to a uh, CD or thumb drive or printed out and then physically removed. Those have tended to be the scenarios that, that we have seen to date, not significant external compromise of a network by these individuals and then extracting it. So that gives us a start for, to me, those are indicators of some things we need, we need to address. So um, people's accessing of information that's not associated with their duties. The use of remote devices, CDs, thumb drives, et cetera, the ability to print, you know, we should really be locking down on those kinds of things. And then lastly, maintaining greater situational awareness of what our workforces are doing. Now, this is a double-edged sword. You know, I, I was the director of NSA in the aftermath of Snowden. And so we're, we're going through massive changes internally about some of the ways we do business and control information. And lots of concerns among the workforce about, hey, you're making my job harder, or are you sending a signal that because of one guy, you don't trust me? I had nothing to do with this guy. What, what is the message you're sending? So I try to remind people, look, this is a double-edged sword. The message I kept trying to pound in the workforce is we are granted extremely sensitive access. And as such, the quid pro quo in this deal is that we acknowledge that we are gonna be held to a higher standard and, 
we are going to have a, a greater level of awareness by the organization about what we are doing. That's what you're signing up for, guys. We do that to protect the nation we serve. It's not about us as individuals. And I thought, by and large, when you talk to the workforce, most of them understand and are willing to do it. Um, the other thing that's interesting to me, and it shows you in some ways, sometimes a little bit of differences of perspective by generation. The greatest compromises of late have tended to be from those who are younger within the workforce. Now, that doesn't mean that all young people you can't, that's not what I mean, but it's just an interesting dynamic to me that there is an element, you know, it, it seems to be at least have a generational component who just looks at security and protection a little differently than perhaps historically we've tended to see. So there's gonna be a big educational component to this as well going forward, making sure the workforce understands what we're doing, why, and what their responsibilities are, and also being very direct, making sure they understand, here's what's gonna happen when you fail to meet your standards, when you fail to meet the obligations that you have voluntarily, you have voluntarily agreed to. Because you don't have to do this if you don't want. If you don't want this kind of oversight, hey, you don't have to work in the DOD or in the National Security Apparatus. This is something that's purely voluntary on your part. And again, it's still very early. We're gonna find, we're gonna find out a lot more, I suspect. Um, but still, it, it should concern us that some young professional felt that it was totally appropriate to share highly sensitive information with a community. Now, in his case, his thinking seems to be, well, this is a small, tightly held community, and we're all joined by this common set of interests we have. And that, that'll be sufficient to protect the information, I suspect. You know, I, yeah. I fundamentally yeah. reject that, but... Yeah, well, the introduction of the word social media in that, I think, should yeah. should really be right. I mean, if if you're you and your five friends can see it, other other folks can see it uh, too. And I'm reminded of uh, the Walker Ring Pollard, right? right? I mean, all of them were sort of mid level, yeah. you know, mechanics in the information infrastructure uh, that put them in ideal position uh, to. Right. But uh, I mean, to, look at uh, look at Manning, a junior individual. Look right. at Snowden, a contractor right. who with a very narrow set of responsibilities, but he had broad access. And right. it looks like a, a young Air National Guardsman who again, 21 years old. Do, do we need, um, so let's say, right, I mean, uh, there, there is some speculation, I think Chris Krebs of uh, CISA, the Cybersecurity uh, Infrastructure Security Agency, at least the former director has said, look, I mean, this also could have been, you know, could have been a burn bag technician. Uh, and, uh, you know, it was an information transport specialist, uh, I believe. Uh, right. I mean, do do things, you know, I mean, I know that we have a whole bunch of uh, things that we do uh, on paper copies of documents, uh, phraseology and the like, uh, and small differences that most people would not spot that allow you to say, okay, that was policy's copy of the memo. That's yeah. a joint staff memo, right? Uh, there's nothing new uh, in that. Um, but I mean, do we, do we need to have sort of when it comes to printed matter and folks are pushing the burn bag cart, right? I mean, you see them in the Pentagon, it's a guy or gal pushing a cart. Do you need two people to be doing that, uh, for example, to, to keep somebody from, I mean, again, you don't want to not trust everybody, but you're in both the trust and not trust business in part because of the ramifications of this, which we're going to get to in a minute. 
Yeah, I think it's a combination. Number one, you got to ask yourself, how do we generate less paper? And then secondly, with the paper that we do generate, what controls are we putting in place to ensure that the material, that paper material that's been pr printed, in some cases, very valid purposes, isn't misused by others who are in the chain of custody, so to speak, for that paper from the time it gets printed out to the time it ends up in a shredder or an incinerator. There is no doubt we're going to have to look at this as an ecosystem. Uh, indeed. Um, now, speaking of scarring, uh, in <laughs> I don't know, a bad, bad you job. You want me to relive my former life. That's it. I That's want it. you to relive your former life. It's a former life. So what are the lessons from both uh, the Manning and the Snowden revelations, right, which were a drip, 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 obviously much more concerted, um, right? I mean, two people who were uh, in their minds whistleblowing uh, legitimately, uh, even even though their actions were highly illegal and very damaging, uh, did not appear to be that they were just boastful, even though there, there might have been an attribute of that, certainly in Snowden, who's a hero of Russia now. Um, uh, living living in sunny Moscow uh, of all of all places as a um, Russian citizen as a Russian citizen uh, as bestowed upon by the great of uh, by Vladimir the Great. Um, what what are the lessons from from both of those? Because we thought there wouldn't be a drip. Um, you were struggling with this about how far ahead you get, uh, and then the drips just kept coming. What what were the macro lessons of this that even goes to allies and partners, Mike? Because you know, everybody's adult about this. Everybody is collecting on one another uh, legally, many through agreements and mutual agreement, um, you know, and yet when the revelations happen, as, as you've said, right, you've gotten very sharp fingers in your chest from some of our closest partners and allies um, when it when it's revealed uh, that that we're doing it. Um, what what are the lessons so if I look at, let, let me focus on this particular one, vice the past, because everyone is different. Like you said, you can argue Manning and Snowden, their argument was, hey, there's an ideological basis to what I'm doing, that I fundamentally have a problem with what uh, I believe the government is doing. And therefore, I feel that it is appropriate that I share this information more broadly. I fundamentally reject that and disagree with the basic premise, but that's the argument they would make. Um, this appears on the face of it to be a very different scenario. But on the other hand, we don't have the full details yet. So, you know, we, we have to acknowledge that this continues to be a work in progress that so we don't yet fully understand all of its dimensions. But my takeaways from what I've seen so far are, um, first, I differentiate between the fact of the compromise and then the, the material within the compromise itself. The, the fact of the compromise tends, it, it endangers the confidence that others have in you, whether it's key partners, whether it's industry that you want to build cooperative relationships with, whether it is allies and partners around the world, anyone who would be willing to share sensitive information with you, you know, tends to step back and say, look, can I count on, on the US national security infrastructure to protect the information I'm sharing with it? Am I no longer, if I don't have that kind of confidence, does it mean perhaps I'm not willing to share that kind of information? And we'll have to see how far this goes. But that's the first thing for compromises like this. That's the first thing that always bothered me. It, it tended to, to weaken the confidence that partners and potential partners had in you. And then secondly, in some cases, it caused, certainly in some of the historic references, it caused some 
who had been previously willing to dialogue and share information with you to pull back and say, look, we're just not going to do this for at least some period of time. The, the second area to me is the nature of the material itself, that which has been compromised or made available publicly. Um, and there's three areas there that, that I look at there that are of concern or impact, I think. The first is the information revealed can be used by the Russians and others to assess the sources and methods that US intelligence uses to gain this kind of information. When they get a sense for exactly what kind of information we have, then they can backtrack and go, so where does this information reside in our structure? Who had access to it? You know, look at the level of specificity, look at the time frame. Those are all clues that the Russians and others who are the targets of US espionage efforts, certainly we've always been very public about saying, hey, look, we use espionage in the United States as a tool to understand what nations who would do harm to us, our interests, our citizens, as well as our friends and allies, we wanna understand what they're doing. The, the second is, and it's something you said, while in the majority of cases, much of this information is something that had already been out there. The reality is the fact that it is being confirmed <laughs> with a high degree of specificity in some of these cases is a problem. Um, and I, I try to, people who say, well, don't worry, this stuff was all publicly available. I'm like, mm, guys, this is a little different. It, it just, trust me, the impact of it on the other side is just different when they get what they believe is confirmation and they're not just reading something in the media. Um, and the third thing, and this is certainly one of the biggest issues with Snowden, for example, was the views of friends and allies who say, look, based on this information I'm reading, it suggests to me that perhaps you are paying attention to me. You are trying to, to work me as a target. Hey, look, that's not what friends do. Now that is the argument you would hear, as, as you have said previously, boy, in the aftermath of Snowden, I had to deal with that in the senior most leadership of nations in multiple capitals around the world. Um, and in a couple of cases, I was able to remind them, look, I know exactly what you do vis-a-vis -vis the United States. So let's not go down this road because I don't think it's particularly healthy for either of us. But you do have to acknowledge that there'll be a, an, an allied dimension to all this. And then the last thing is, okay, so given that this has happened, how do we use this as an impetus to drive change? Because what this and the events before it show is, guys, I think we've, we don't have the fundamentals of security right. I just think we've put ourselves in a situation where information is very broadly available. It's accessible by a wide range of individuals. And while there's positive to, the, to that, we, we also need to ask ourselves, what do we do to ensure that that methodology, that approach to intelligence sharing isn't used against us and doesn't create problems if it leads to compromise? And that's the scenario we're looking at here. Does this undermine, as some people have suggested, sort of unity in the five, five eyes, right? I mean, is there a permanent lasting damage to this? Because compared with what we sur survived, Mike, I mean, this is not nearly yeah I, I would not say permanent league, right? right I wouldn't say permanent and lasting and the five eyes would not be the individuals I'd be worried about I'd right. be worried about nations who we don't necessarily have such a deep historic relationship look the, the thing about the five eyes structure is we know that in the road together there's going to be bumps 
And yet you are always mindful. What the value in this relationship is, is the fact that it sustains itself over time and it, it generates value for all of us for an extended period of time. So that leads us to believe, hey, we'll deal with the bumps because the long-term value is so high. When you don't have that fundamental long-term view or long-term history, it gets to be a little bit more problematic often. Right. So I don't worry about the five eye structure. I don't worry about NATO. I, I tend to focus on a small subset of, of countries that may look at us and go, look, I don't have a historic relationship with you, but right now we're in a period of, of high mutual interest. Hey, how this leads me to believe either you don't trust me or you're working me as a target. Hey, why would you do that? But I don't think it's going to lead to permanent long-term severance. So again, we need to be very measured and very specific here. The timing of this is particularly bad because it reveals an ally's weaknesses while at the same time allowing the adversary to uh, determine where it has leaks to plug them. The right. Russians, as we've discussed many times on this program with you, uh, there are things they are good at. There are things they are not good at. Overall, when it comes to intelligence, they tend to be pretty good at it. They tend to be pretty good at set piece operations uh, as well and, and have a long view on this. At the end of the day, the Ukrainians are planning an offensive, whether or not the Russians know how many HIMARS they have or how many air defense missiles they have. How does this change planning as a general rule? I'm not asking you to comment on what the Ukrainians will do, but ultimately you, they still have to do what they have to do on their timeline despite this. Um, what are, way, are there ways you can mitigate this? So first, what you try to do is a damage assessment. Okay, what exactly has been revealed? And what are the implications for either our ongoing near-term operations, as well as potentially the strategy that we have designed to, to counter the Russians in this case? So there's a damage assessment initially. Then there is a, okay, so given that, what are the implications? Um, clearly, the, the Ukrainians want to execute an offensive push against the Russians coming up. The question will be, does this material materially change that at all? I, I suspect not significantly, but I do expect that the Ukrainians are asking themselves, let's reassess this now in light of what's been compromised. And are there changes we need to make? Do we need to tweak it? Do you change the timing? Do you change the thrusts? Do you change your deception plans, et cetera? They'll be walking their way through all of this. Let me, let me ask you one last question, and it's about information, disinformation, and what you can fundamentally believe. The, the Russians uh, are very good at disinformation. They're used in the Chinese, and they're both using it very effectively around the world to undermine support for not just democracy, but uh, you know, support for the war to help right. you know, as, as, much, as much as people don't want the world to divide in two blocks. That's exactly what they're doing, and they're being pretty effective at it. Uh, in some in some respects. And some of this information has obviously been doctored. Uh, some have suggested that this is disinformation on the part of the United States as a concerted effort, uh, which is why some people are as breathless as they are about it to have the Russians swallow the bait. The Russians appear to have manipulated some of this information to inflate Ukrainian casualties and decrease their own. Um, it, to the point where some people are like, you know what, I don't know what to believe. And, and some Ukrainian commanders have been quoted saying, I don't even know what's true anymore. I don't really give a crap. And I'm going to focus on the reality as it sits in front of me. 
what does this incident tell us about truth, its stewardship? You know, I mean, it it opens so many support. You know what I mean? It's like, oh, well, I can't believe yeah. any of this because it could be disinformation which could actually be in our advantage if we could say, ah, you can't really believe any of this. Um, are they, or are we too honest for our own good? I'm, I'm, not, I'm not asking to be duplicitous, right, at all uh, to a former director of the, of the NSA uh, who was very careful to make public statements to be truthful statements, because yeah. again, it's about trust. How yeah. does this affect that? Mike and and how to think about it and so I would argue number one it is emblematic of the fact that in this hyperconnected world that we live in in which the ability to harness technology to manipulate information whether it be in a printed form whether it be in you know imagery video etc the ability to discern truth becomes ever more difficult um, which also means we've all got to be a little bit more skeptical. And sadly, we've all got to be a little bit more skeptical and you can't take things at, at face value. Um, and clearly it appears that the Russians not only were able to extract this information once it was put out in this chat arena and then made more available more broadly on, on, to a broader community online, it appears that, that some of the information they then manipulated with the sense that, hey, this is out there it's a matter of public record. Hey, let's take advantage of it. Let's use, let's distort it to send a message that supports our premises. Hey, the Ukrainians are taking more casualties than they're saying. Hey, the Ukrainians in a, are in a more tenuous position in some ways than the world wants to believe. Um, and so both Ukraine, ourselves, and the broader world we're a part of, you know, the ability to, to discern truth becomes much more difficult. But that's always been the challenge for intelligence to me. How do you discern truth? How do you then present it in a way that engenders confidence among the people that are in the audience receiving this information, whether it be US policymakers, political leaders, military commanders, key allies and friends, et cetera. This is a challenge that I think has been true for intelligence since time immortal and technology and the hyper-connected world we're living in and the just proliferation of sources of information that are readily available these days to anybody just makes that more difficult. I think the thing to look to look at the things to look at moving forward are number one, what exactly did this individual or others end up extracting? Who in because I think we're going to find that he may have been the only one to extract the information, but he was definitely protected by others in this group who I thought were trying to hide his identity from the government. So I look for more arrests personally. Um, I don't think he's gonna be the only guy. We need to see how friends and allies react to all this. And then this is one that won't be public, but the intelligence structure in the US now is gonna be looking to see how do the Russians change their defensive strategies to protect information? Does this make access to current sources much more difficult for the U.S. We'll have to see. Mike, always an honor and pleasure having you on the program. Uh, an absolute treat. No, Thanks very much for a thoughtful uh, conversation and look forward to having you back on again soon. Thanks so much. Thanks. Have a great day. And thanks very much to all of you for joining us today. And a very special thanks to Bell for their generous sponsorship that helps make this program possible. We'll see you again tomorrow.